This program was brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, a joint center at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management. We need to transition away from fossil fuels rapidly in order to maintain human and planetary health. This transition to renewable energy is so exciting for its potential to create a more equitable future. And I actually think this huge change that's going on in the energy infrastructure in the United States, uh, you know, toward, toward more renewables is a huge opportunity to be doing that. There's a lot of work trying to figure out what does this Appalachian transition look like. And one, one important tenet of it is job training. Welcome back to the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast. I'm your host, Katie Ebinger. This season, we're discussing the intersections of the COVID-19 pandemic and the clean energy movement. Last episode, we covered the external cost of coal extraction and combustion. We also talked about the concerted effort of fossil fuel companies to associate coal, oil, and gas with masculinity, duty, and pride. Let's continue our exploration of the rural transition. Today, we talk jobs. How can we replace dirty energy jobs in rural spaces, and how can we make them culturally relevant? To contextualize this a bit, there's a big decline in coal. As recently as 2008, burning coal generated around 50% of U.S. electricity. Now it's under 20%. Some of you might have been tipped off by that 2008 timeline, and it's true that some of that decrease in coal use has just gone to natural gas, which has been really cheap after the advent of fracking. But renewables are becoming cost-effective, too. A report by Sierra Club, RMI, and others found that it would be cheaper to shut down 73% of global coal plants by 2025 and replace them with renewables, rather than continuing to run the existing coal plants. But a closure on coal plants means people working those jobs have to find new work. And can we actually create enough clean energy jobs to offset that employment? The answer's a little complicated. Uh, we can't really give a, an affirmative answer of yes or no. There'll be exactly enough jobs or in what areas because we really need to learn more about the transitioning energy market. That's Adele Ferranti. She's a program manager at the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. We're really working hard to model and estimate the number of clean energy jobs that exist now and will be created as we move through this energy transition. We're also assessing the jobs that will no longer exist. So we really need to learn a lot more about the timing of jobs, the area those jobs are going to be created, the type of jobs, and how they may line up with some of the people that will be looking to transition to those jobs, as well as new entrants that will be entering this workspace for the first time. Adele helps us break down different considerations that need to be made to answer this question more fully. And there are a lot of factors to consider. One is really related to the net number of jobs that are either lost or created and what impact those job losses or creation have on the local, regional, and national economies. In terms of net jobs, let's take a second to look at the state of Virginia. In 2020, Virginia became the first Southern state to pass a law to go 100% renewable in its electricity sector by 2050. And there was a report published by Advanced Energy Economy in 2019 that analyzed the impact on Virginia jobs from this transition. It predicted that going renewable would add between 7,000 and 11,000 new jobs per year compared to the business-as-usual scenario. But that number alone doesn't really tell the full impact of the transition. By that number, she means the net jobs number in general, not specifically for this plan. We didn't discuss the Virginia plan together. 
the types of jobs that are lost versus created. We've got to look at wages and benefits and where the jobs are located and how they're going to be filled by a diverse group of qualified workers are, are some of the critical data points that we're evaluating. Part of Adele's work at NYSERDA has been to think about new jobs holistically, as she put it. There will be new jobs created in a lot of sectors that might be directly, tangentially, or unrelated to energy. We talked to Phil Bredesen. He's a former two-term governor of Tennessee who spearheaded bringing solar to the state in the aughts. He's optimistic, like we are, about what the clean energy transition can bring to rural and traditionally conservative states. We've got to stop being so elitist about things, stop having a lot of people in big cities telling everybody else in the country what it is they're supposed to do and really settle down and figure out how to actually help people with some of the real day-to-day challenges that they have in finding finding good jobs and secure jobs and having good schools and so on. I actually think this huge change that's going on, which is very real to in the energy infrastructure in the United States toward more renewables away from coal and so on, is a huge opportunity to be doing that. We hope to do, as Governor Bredesen says in this clip, Focus on how the transition will benefit people. So let's look at some examples of how that can happen. And, you know, when we build a, a solar facility today, less than half of the cost of that is actually in those solar panels. I mean, there's a lot of steel, there's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of labor and putting them in the ground and a lot of wiring and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to see just some incentive to have some of these very low-tech companies that make the steel and so on move into some of these coal areas and actually provide some real jobs for people who are losing jobs in the, in the coal industry. So you're not talking about how many jobs are going to be created by solar, and you know, which they think are probably going to happen in Silicon Valley or something, but instead saying this is a way to bring some jobs right home from here. They're manufacturing jobs. They're not super high-skilled jobs. I mean, they're things that are accessible to somebody who's you know midlife and is not going to learn to be a computer programmer tomorrow. They've been working at a manufacturing job or in a coal mine, and they, they need a job like that that's got some security. And I think there's some real possibilities there, and I think some stimulus money could really help could really help drive that. Adele gives a cool example of when the labor union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, approached NYSERDA for education and funding support to help train their members in different clean energy skills. We helped them develop new curriculum, train their trainers, and implement training. So they had a good training module on photovoltaics as part of their five-year apprenticeship. Then as those uh, workers learn more about the new advanced technologies in the clean energy economy, The IBW came back to us and said, we'd love to train our electricians on some of the more advanced lighting technologies. This is when LEDs were first really coming on the scene and LED lighting controls. We provided them funding to develop advanced lighting controls. They did the same to train their workers on electric vehicle charging station. And now they're working with us on energy storage and microgrid training. So there's a great example where the union came to us with a real business need to expand the skill set of their very talented workforce, and we were able to provide funding for them to do that. I love that idea of an organization coming forward, presenting a need, and then the clean energy movement adding capacity rather than dictating what people need to do. You know, I think that there also has to be a balance of listening to people in a region that will be heavily impacted by strong climate legislation that ends the use of coal. And that's important. There's a real strong counterpoint of climate change affects everyone across the globe for all time. Dr. Bozy, who you met last episode, joins us to talk more about justice and the energy transition. There's a need to rapidly move away from fossil fuels. How do we do that in a way that doesn't leave people in Appalachian and other regions behind? 
There are some really exciting opportunities outside of the clean energy sector entirely that can account for some of those displaced workers. Dr. Bozy walks us through some of those possibilities. One, one important tenet of it is job training. There's great work happening around agriculture and especially linking that with reclaimed mines. And there's actually a really interesting history. So south of, of this region where a lot of the mining is taking place, there was a lot of tobacco farms. Federal government provided resources to help shift those tobacco farms to other kinds of agriculture. There's some parallels there. So one side of it is, is the economics, but I think the other side is that is going back to this issue of culture and feeling like it's, it's an attack on, on the region and on its cultural identity. You can propose an alternative that, that maybe fills up the budget deficit. I think that that cultural factor can still remain. And so that's why this other work to, to lift up other kinds of, other kinds of meaning for the region is important. And, and then making sure that, that these alternative jobs are also ones that are, that are meaningful and, and, and interesting to people in the region. Our question remains, how do we prioritize people who need jobs the most? We definitely don't want to displace workers and then have no plan to re-employ them. And actually, the United Mine Workers of America came out in April 2021, supporting the transition to clean energy, so long as displaced coal miners were prioritized for employment. And Adele actually walks us through exactly how we can do that prioritization. When we think about some of these jobs, I think it's really important to talk about how we are prioritizing training programs for the state's most underserved populations, low-income populations, veterans, Native Americans, disabled workers, single parents, and the formerly incarcerated. And we're also trying to help uh, integrate displaced workers as we think about fossil fuel workers into the clean energy industry. We give preference and or higher incentives for training programs or people that are going to hire new workers that are in those priority populations. So in one example, we have the on-the-job training program where we provide wage subsidies to businesses hiring new clean energy workers. So for example, it could be a solar installation company. In the case of solar, since we have done a lot of work here in New York to help the solar industry and provide training, if a solar installation company comes to us, we will only help subsidize a worker from those priority population. So in that case, the incentive to hire that worker is several thousand dollars more than if someone else was going to hire a traditional worker. A lot of what Adele has been talking about requires some funding. And I want to go back to something that Governor Bredesen said a few minutes ago. He said that some stimulus money could help drive the transition to clean energy jobs. As governor, he was able to take advantage of some of the stimulus funding that came out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act under President Obama. Now, we actually got a huge amount, a couple couple billion dollars right in the middle of the big the big recession then um, of investment in uh, in solar created a lot of jobs, both in construction and, you know, and, and ultimately. And I think, you know, that was important, which was to not try to make it, you know, you're not a good person if you don't do this, but to show people how it was in the interest of the state to seek to do this. It worked, it actually worked, uh, I think, very well. Some of them went into some, I guess, some experimentation with solar. We built a large, at the time it was large, it was five megawatts. It's tiny today. A solar facility um, in West Tennessee, kind of as a demonstration. We wanted to use it as a place to bring kids to out of schools and see what it was like and so on. He does say that the stimulus itself wasn't responsible 
for Tennessee's solar push. I asked Governor Bredesen that even though he didn't need the stimulus money to incentivize his decision as governor to pursue solar, what could a stimulus package look like that incentivizes some potentially rural on the fence states to make that leap into supporting clean energy development? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things you, you could do. I mean, first of all, I want to emphasize that what has already happened, which is a continuation of some of the tax incentives for solar, solar development, is important. I mean, they're an important component of it, but also just providing a stable environment. One of the things I found as governor is companies didn't care so much exactly what the rules were in the states. They just wanted to know that they they were the, they'd be the same five years from now that they were today. They just wanted to know what the environment they worked in and making sure that people understand that there will be for a period of time you know, these these kinds of incentives in place, I think really helps people to plan and to produce solar. So it sounds promising. There are so many possibilities for equitable job creation in this transition. We even have a proposed stimulus bill that could help actualize some of these benefits. Biden's multi-trillion dollar infrastructure and jobs bill, yes, includes improvements to things like bridges and roads and sewers and water lines, but it also includes things like grid modernization and supporting a move to renewable energy development. So what happens if we aren't able to pass the infrastructure bill that we want? We'll have to save those for next episode. So please tune back in for our third episode in the Rural Transition Series. This podcast was written and edited by me, Katie Ebinger. Our executive producer is Vera Borgmeier, and our theme music is by Dr. Turtle. Thanks so much for listening in. And if you want to check out additional resources, our website is cbay, which is cbsmboy.yale.edu forward slash podcast. And if you want to send us any comments or questions, our email is cbay.podcast at yale.edu. Thanks again and see you next episode.